0: To my 21-year-old mind, they had nothing to do with each other because if it wasn't music, it wasn't real. Nothing could coexist. In my 53-year-old brain, oh yeah, there's a lot of overlaps between musical thinking and leadership development, 100%. We've learned that the quality and depth of the relationships that you have at work are the single biggest influencer of happiness, engagement, and productivity. And they're the biggest influencer of happiness, engagement, and productivity, not just at work, but in life. Because when we're happier, we're happier. We sort of dispel this notion of work-life balance. It's just life, right? It's a, it's a blend. If you're at home and thinking about work or at work and thinking about home, that's just who you are. Your whole self is there. If your relationship quality is higher, your ability to be authentic is higher. I think that's where the magic is.
1: My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. If you've been listening for a while, You might remember my conversation with world-leading coach Morag Barrett back in episode 35 of The Unlock Moment. Well, today I'm delighted to be welcoming one of her colleagues and co-authors onto the podcast. Eric Spencer's passion is designing and facilitating executive and leadership development programs that transform careers and leader reputations. A COO for SkyTeam, he brings more than 20 years of experience building and shaping human resources organizations. Eric holds a bachelor's degree in management From Arizona State University and an MBA with a focus on organizational behavior from Virginia Tech, he is the father to two amazing young women and an avid musician, and spends his free time writing, recording, and performing in his band Rogue Two. He's the host and chief bartender of the Corporate Bartender podcast, and together with the aforementioned Moray Barrett and Ruby Vesely, co-author of the book You, Me, We: Why We All Need a Friend at Work and How to Show Up as One. It was their one-year book anniversary just yesterday. If you've heard him on The Corporate Bartender, then you'll know this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation. Now, apparently, Eric has had meaningful moments in the back of Aerosmith's tour bus and believes in the power of the cowbell. I can't wait to learn more. I'm looking forward to hearing his take on leadership growth and culture. Of course, I'm curious to learn about the Unlock Moments of Remarkable Clarity that shaped his own life's journey. Eric Spencer, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to The Unlock Moment.
0: Thanks, Gary. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Fantastic. Thanks so much for accepting the invitation. Now, can we start with Aerosmith? How (laughs) did you end up in the back of their tour bus and what were you doing?
0: You know, when you say it out loud, it sounds pretty shady. Um, Not shady at all. Actually, I'm a musician, as you just told everyone. Uh, And once upon a time, I actually made my living as a touring musician. We were on a stint playing with another band who was actually opening for Aerosmith at this point in Aerosmith's career, they were only playing certain nights a week. So on the nights that they weren't playing, we would play with the opening band in a smaller venue in the same city on Aerosmith nights. We would either play our own shows or we would just hang out. So we were hanging out. I, uh, I played a lot of mortal Kombat on the back of the Aerosmith tour bus. So it's not, it's not super meaningful, but it's noteworthy and it was, part of my journey. I mean, my identity as a musician, I was all chips in at that moment in time. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, I'm sure
1: memorable. I'm not sure everybody in the back of a tour bus remembers all the elements <laughs> of, of, of their experience. But I
0: call it the best moments of my life and the worst moments of my life. Happy that I did it. Glad I'm not doing it today.
1: That's, that's interesting to hear. So today you're a leadership coach and a very successful author. But where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today?
0: You know, I would, I would start maybe not in the Aerosmith tour bus, but definitely in that time frame. Because as a kid growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a musician. And I went to the nth degree to make that happen. But during undergrad, to fuel my, my musical dreams... Uh, I had rigorous criteria about my schedule, course schedule during school. I could only go to school on Tuesday, Thursday, because I worked a lot. I worked in a music shop and as a, as a working musician, both live performing and as a, as a studio guy. So I could only go to school two days a week and I needed an upper division elective that was business oriented because I was working on a business degree. So I picked one with a arcane name called management systems. I didn't know what it meant. But it met my criteria. It was Thursday night, and I could get it in there. Um, during that course, I met a PhD candidate by the name of Chris Neck, who became my my first mentor in this space. And I learned about organizational behavior, org design, and leadership development. And it was a thing that I didn't even know existed. So I thought, "Ooh, that's interesting. If this music thing doesn't work out, that's something I want to look into." And you described that
1: like that too completely separate things do you really think they are two completely separate things
0: to to my 21 year old mind they they were they had nothing to do with each other because if it wasn't music it wasn't real Mm. right nothing could coexist in my 53 year old brain oh yeah there's a lot of overlaps (laughs) between musical thinking and leadership development 100%
1: yeah it's really interesting that I used to be a professional dancer when I was growing up and and we my wife and I retired as competitive professional dancers about 10 years ago. And only quite recently I've started to think about the connection between a coaching relationship and a dancing relationship and the way two people communicate with one another and all that mm. kind of thing. And I'm sure, you know, when you think about how a band plays and the energy of a band yeah. and how a team works together and the energy of a team, in actual fact, it takes time to figure this stuff out. I mm-hmm. I I look back and I think, why didn't I see this before? But right. I, I used to think, Dancing was a thing, like business and leadership and the other stuff that I was doing was a separate thing. And then my right. coaching mentor said to me, what if they're not? And, and, and where does your dancing come through in your coaching? And I was like, oh, mm. that's a really good question. It doesn't because right. there's a block in my brain that says there's a different thing. But actually, yeah. but actually it isn't really. So, so that's interesting. And in the music world, what role were you playing? Instrumentalist, lead singer, what, where were you?
0: I grew up as a drummer. I started life, well, I started life playing clarinet in sixth grade. And that lasted about three months until I learned about drumline. My sister was a baton twirler, a majorette in a little baton and drum corps in our little town. And I went to practice with her. It was like the second week of school. I had just chosen clarinet and I was standing there watching this drumline perform. And I looked at my mom and I said, I want to do that. Hmm. And uh, I so I became a drummer and... What I learned about being a drummer is <laughs> drummers can always work. There's not a lot of them out there that that can hold down that chair effectively. So I got super busy all through high school playing drums everywhere I could play drums. It was only as I started to grow as a musician, I started picking up other instruments. And at this point in my life, when people ask me what I play, my answer is usually anything that you don't have to blow through or drag a bow across. Um, because in the band I play in now it's an acoustic trio and I'm, I'm a vocalist and play guitar and bass and banjo and mandolin and all sorts of stringy things. Fantastic.
1: And, and as you've then gone through your career, getting into this leadership development space, all of that, what do you think of when you think about this idea of an unlocked moment of remarkable clarity? What comes to mind for you as a moment when you suddenly figured out something that changed the course of your life and career?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? You know, I met this, I met this person, Christopher Neck. I thought that's really fascinating work. And then, you know, I left, I graduated, I went off to do, you know, like those first jobs that we get, right. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a job because I didn't know how to do that yet. So I called my parents and I'm like, do you know anybody that needs help? Cause I need a job. And I ended up taking a job that had nothing to do with anything that I do today overtly, And the opportunity to join this touring group happened. So I took it and went all chips in on music. And as that kind of came to an end, I thought, man, I got to get a job. I got to get my life together here. And I went back to revisit this org behavior, org design leadership development space. And I learned pretty quickly that if you haven't ever done it, nobody wanted to pay you to do it. So I thought, well, I got to figure this out. So I made a very educated decision. I said, well, learning and development tends to live inside of HR. I'll just get an HR job. And I conned a very lovely Scottish woman into hiring me into an HR role in a British software company that was moving into the United States. And I thought, okay, this is it. I will use this HR lever to get myself into the work that I wanted to do. Well, make a short story long. I worked in HR for 25 years. Doing leadership development along the way, but it was never my primary focus. I, I started life, you know, as, a, as an HR business partner and did that for a long time and then became, you know, a director, senior director, VP of HR. Always in the HR lane, but connected to the work that I truly wanted to do. And it wasn't until almost 11 years ago now that that moment popped for me. And what was that
1: pivot? So you've been in this space for a long time going, I know why I'm here, but it's not really why I'm here. There's another thing mm-hmm. that I want to get mm-hmm. into. What was that pivot point?
0: Well, I had just I had just done my second startup, and you know how startups go, right? Either you make a lot of money and you buy a boat and move to an island, or you do it again. Um so I had done it once and then I did it again and the second one was was winding down. So I thought, here I am again, right? Got to get a job. Got to figure out what I want to do next. And so I went down the traditional path, had an offer on the table to be VP of HR at a technology company. And I wasn't really excited about it. So one of my friends runs a talent acquisition firm here in Denver. And he said, hey, we're thinking about starting an HR consulting practice. And we don't know how to do that, but you do. Do you want to do that? I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So I wrote a business plan. And, you know, I had dabbled with running my own shops here and there throughout my history. And uh, I wrote this business plan, but it had been a while since I had been in the game. And I thought, I need to run this by somebody who's in the space and is reasonably successful. So I asked around and, you know, Morag and I had kind of passed each other at a technology company here in town. I was arriving there just as she was leaving there. So I knew her by reputation, but I didn't really know her directly but I reached out to her and I said, Hey, this is me. Uh, I have a question. Would you be up for taking a look at my plan and just making sure that I'm not crazy. And, uh, we got together, she looked, she looked over the plan and, you know, ended up saying, so you're going to do one of these two things. And I'm like, yeah, probably. I mean, it's, it was October at the time. And I was like, probably not till the first of the year. I'm just going to take it easy. And she eventually said, well, why don't, why don't we do it together? And I was like, oh, and that's when time kind of stopped because I thought that's what I want to do. Right. The HR consultancy wasn't really what I wanted to do It was closer, but this is what I wanted to do. And so we, we ended up talking about it and she took me on a couple of gigs with her and we kind of, you know, we're feeling it out. Do we click? Is this a thing? And, uh, Gary, I got to be honest with you, it's the best choice I ever made in my professional life. I've been here almost 11 years. It's the longest I've ever done anything professionally other than play drums or music of some sort. And I get to do amazing work with amazing clients. And I do it with my co-authors, Morag and Ruby, people who I consider my best friends in not work, just in life. I love them.
1: It's really interesting. So you said, You knew in that moment, this is what I want to do. What did you know then that made it, this is the thing?
0: Well, it it was like the first time that the work that I really felt called to do didn't involve any ancillary work, right? Usually, this work that I wanted to do was sort of bolted on to the thing that I had to do. You have to do this HR thing and you get to do this leadership thing, right? This was the first time that I didn't have to do anything else. Ostensibly, I didn't know, right? It was an idea in that moment, but that's what it felt like because that's all that Morag was doing at the time. And I thought, okay, I've never been in a position where I've made a choice into an opportunity where this was the singular focus.
1: That's really interesting one. A lot of the people that I work with, I think, will resonate with that because there's a part of what they do that's a the bit they're really passionate about, but there's a huge volume of other stuff that they're not really passionate about. And and right. it sort of dilutes the passion that they have because they go, you know, I love my Friday, whatever it is, but <laughs> right. Monday to Thursday, it's so painful, I'm so exhausted, By I come to Friday, by the time I come to Friday, I'm not sure I really mm-hmm. enjoy it and I'm fulfilled by it, you know. Is it really possible to spend most of your time doing a thing that you're really passionate about? And of course, the answer, not for everybody, but for lots of people, the answer is yes. (laughs) But you have to choose it. And there's something about taking ownership and saying, I'm going to do this. Don't have to. I'm choosing to do it.
0: Yeah. And you know, Gary, we are so socialized, at least my generation, so socialized in the you have to have a job and you have to follow a path, right? This traditional career model that we've lived in for, you know, the last 30 years until things recently started to change and, you know, new generations have new ideas and the pandemic changed how people think about, you know, work in general, but I could never get off that hamster wheel. And, you know, you get rewarded up a chain. So I was in this HR lane And, you know, I was getting my my promotions and moving my way up that stack to give that up and go do something else means, well, now you have a career arc story to craft a and B, it might mean a difference in compensation or level or recognition. And we're not always willing to take that. Like, uh, if I stay in this lane, I can keep my VP job. If I go over here, I've got to be a, a director or manager and start take a step backwards, you know, using big fat air quotes here to get back to where I am today. And you're not, not everyone's willing to do that.
1: But you're a person where in your past you would have made huge compromises because you were running a day job and a music career. And I, you know, I, I did the same with a day job and a professional international dance career. And I've had you know, a few people on the podcast who are top athletes and so on. And you say lots of people who pursue their passion, particularly if their passion doesn't earn them much or any money at all, make massive sacrifices. And then a lot of other people are scared of the sacrifice, are scared of the compromise. And it doesn't mean you've Mm -hmm. got to take the sacrifices that, you know, an international athlete would take or an international musician or something would take. But you can take bigger compromises than you're used to taking. And sometimes when people say, well, if I could have, those things that I really would like to have, then I would compromise quite a lot for that, mm-hmm. actually. I might compromise mm-hmm. my total scale of income. I might compromise not necessarily working for such a famous brand. But I, mm-hmm. I get to choose what I do four out of five days in the week. Well, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty interesting. So, yeah, interesting to hear that transition. A lot of the time when I'm talking to people about their unlock moments, I describe it as a lens on purpose. So when you talk about that pivot point, this is what I want to do, this thing, mm-hmm. you want to focus in on leadership.
0: Looking back on that, what does that tell you about your underlying sense of purpose? Oh, this is this is massively clear as well. One of the things I learned about myself in my HR career was that I loved helping people get better at whatever that is, Right. And I used to say that, that my purpose in this space was to help individuals, teams, and organizations get better. And that was great. But what I learned in this space over the last 11 years, and this is a, a turn of phrase brought to my mind by, by my colleague, Ruby, Ruby Vesely. She said one day in front of a workshop full of people, she said, you know, our purpose here at Sky Team is to help make people's lives lighter. And that just really resonated with me. That was a more articulate way of saying the thing I was trying to say when I said, we, we help people, organizations and teams get better, making lives lighter just really kind of popped for me because it's, it's not, it's not just better, better at your craft, better at your relationships, better at whatever it's, it's lighter, it's happier, it's more fulfilling. And, uh, being able to put your energies, project energies, you know, work energies with that end goal in mind, it's a whole lot different than slogging through performance review season or budget season, right? I mean, I know that when we get to the end of an engagement, if all things go well, the people on the other side of the table are better off, not just in their jobs, but as human beings, they are just better off. I'm better off for knowing who they are and what they do and, and having the opportunity to help shape their contributions in the world. Man, that's powerful stuff.
1: Making their lives lighter. I really like that. And it resonates with something that recent guest Scott Osman talked about on, on mm-hmm. the podcast. He's the CEO of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches, and he was talking about finding lightness. We were having a conversation about when you're in the mire, when you're stuck on that hamster wheel running at 1,000 miles an hour, it feels Really hard to change. It feels almost impossible to get to that place of feeling light, lightness. But actually, once you've made that transition, and this is not necessarily a job transition, it's just a mindset transition, it isn't that hard necessarily. And Scott was talking about, he's, he said, I, I was talking to somebody and I said, You know, that thing that you're stuck with, you could just let it go. And, and they said, No, I can't. You know, I've been struggling with it for many, many years. And he right. went, No, you can just let it go. And he said, then they came back a week later and they said, you know that thing that you said I could just let it go? I did. And it's gone. Wow. And I was like, that's interesting. I talk about hamster wheels because a lot of people use that metaphor. And I say, you know how a hamster stops running on the hamster wheel, don't you? And people are like, how? And I said, they just stop running. (laughs) You don't need somebody else to stop the hamster wheel. You just stop running. But you have to choose to. In that moment, once you stop running, you go, I wasn't that hard. But in the moment, when you're going at a thousand miles an hour, you you can't see a route.
0: Momentum is a big thing. And people, humans don't love change. Humans Mm. don't love uncertainty, right? I mean, think about adult learners. Adult learners hate not knowing the answer. And to stop the hamster wheel, I mean, that's step one. But then I have to get off it. And my comfort zone is just, it's running. It's getting back on that wheel and starting to do, starting to do the fast battle. If I get off, I have to do something else. The thing I've been threatening to do for X number of of time, whatever that is, it may be the thing that I want to do more than anything in the world, but it's still risky. If I'm not fully committed and believe in my ability to do that and I struggle with that. I'm a, I'm a depression and an anxiety kid and you know I was I was diagnosed with depression when I was 27 years old but I know that it was some is been a part of my life since I can remember, right? And that really gets in your way when you have to make a choice to do something different. I've stayed places too long, I've been in relationships too long, I've made the choice to not make a choice because it's too much. It's too scary. It's too overwhelming. So I'll just keep running. And it wasn't until, I don't know, the last 10 years where I've started to make choices in a different way. Do I still struggle? Absolutely. Do I always make the right decision? Nope. Do I still get stuck in these mini whirlpools? They're not so much tamster wheels anymore. Now they're, they're kind of this way for me. Yeah. All the time but they're not as intense and they're not as deep. And I am not as reluctant to make the choice to do something different. Because. Because I now it's it's interesting, right? It's the circle of life right now. I have seen enough other people's lives change for better to be lighter in the work that I'm doing, that it's not just a theoretical imperative anymore. I, I've seen real world evidence that this stuff actually works. People can like you said, you can just stop. You can just let it go, right? You can. And I've seen enough other people do it and I've helped them get there. At least I like to think I had something to do, some input in that process that I believe that's a real thing. It's not a figment of, of my imagination. It's not something that lives out in the ether. It lives here on earth in a place with air in it that I can do that right now. I love that.
1: Is there a story that you think of as somebody you've worked with where they've gone through that transition and made their lives lighter that you think will resonate with people that are listening? Is there someone you can think of that, where that was really resonant for you?
0: Yeah, so I remember I was working with a sales leader and, it, and this person was good at their job, right? super into it, just from a, from a craft perspective, they were a good salesperson, but they weren't, they weren't getting any return personally on selling widgets. Right. So it was fine. I mean, this person was wired to be a salesperson, but they were marginally successful in their widget sales career. And we started working together and through the course of of learning about him i learned that he was passionate about about helping people with medical issues he had some family history and he had a situation in his family where somebody needed a bone graft right so they needed cells they needed those donated materials to make their lives different and that was always banging around in the back of his mind and i had another client at the time that did just that. And I said, Ooh, we had this conversation one day and he was telling me about his family members situation. And I said, Oh, well, you should talk to these people because that's actually what they do. They collect the donated tissue. They turn it into, you know, those, <laughs> they turn that donated tissue into fake spinal discs that they put back into human beings. So I introduced them. They had a conversation. He ended up going to work for them and his career exploded. Like he was doing the thing that he was gifted at. He was gifted at helping people connect with these ideas and selling things. And now he was doing it in a place that was in alignment with what was really important to him personally. And it just exploded. He was considering, you know, sort of kicking the sales career and going to do something else and trying to figure it out. And it was this conversation where we were talking about his family member situation. And it was the passion with which he was talking about that. It was like, oh, this is really important to you. And then the light bulb moment for me is like, oh, well, I actually know somebody that does that thing. You should talk to him and see what they say. Mm-hmm. That's actually a thing that you can do, right? To your point, Gary, there there are things out there that match up with your with your gifts and talents that also can be aligned with your values and what's important to you. We just don't always know where to go to look for those things. Mm-hmm.
1: And there's something in there about building those relationships between people who have aligned purpose, aligned vision, aligned ways of working, all of those kinds of things. And I think that segues really nicely into learning more about the book, You, Me, We. I mean, you know, it's it's been out for a year now. talked to Morag (laughs) a year ago when it was just coming out. What's been your experience with it? And what are the messages that are really resonating with people that you're working with that are coming out of of this book?
0: (laughs) But, well, you know, it's the it's the it's the dealing with imposter syndrome of being a being a legitimate published author. Right. The stories that that stick with me, you know, I talk to people who've read the book and they tell me how it actually changed a relationship in their lives for the better. And, you know, the imposter part of my brain goes, it actually works. It actually works. Right. Um, and the published author expert in the field goes, hmm, exactly as we expected it would, right? <laughs> um, but what's funny to me is everybody that I talk to has been able to tell me a specific thing because I always ask the question like, hey, I love the book. And I'd be like, what did you love about it, right? And then they go, oh, I didn't know I was going to have to talk about that. <laughs> uh, and then we have to go a layer deeper. And everybody that I've interacted with, is hundreds of people at this point in time, they can all tell me a specific story about a specific relationship. And really that's that's what the book's all about. You know, Morag's first book, Cultivate, was a, we call it an outside-in perspective. Cultivate the power of winning relationships. It's about assessing your, your relationships at work and figuring out where they stand. You, Me, We is an inside-out perspective book. It's about the ch- intentional choices that you make in a specific relationship. Like, what are you gonna do to invest in that relationship? And we do this under the guise of there are five practices and some of them will come more easily to some people and some you're going to have to work on. So what are the intentional choices you can make to bolster that relationship so that everybody's lives are better? Both people in that relationship, their lives are lighter. And I've gotten just so many stories of people who have a better situation in a very specific relationship and they can at least draw a line back to something that was said in the book. And,
1: and why is it that relationships is the thing that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, this is this is central to, to Sky Team's existence, right? In the work that we've done over the last decade and the research for these books, we've learned that the quality and depth of the relationships that you have at work are the single biggest influencer of happiness, engagement, and productivity. And... They're the biggest influencer of happiness, engagement and productivity, not just at work, but in life, because when we're happier, we're happier, right? We, we sort of dispel this notion of work-life balance. It's just life, right? It's a, it's a blend. You know, if you're at home and thinking about work or at work and thinking about home, it's just, that's just who you are. Your whole self is there. And if your relationship quality is higher, your ability to be authentic is higher, and that's, I think that's where the magic is.
1: It's interesting. So there's a huge narrative at the moment around improving well-being at work and creating mm-hmm. more flexible cultures that work for each individual, the way they want to work, whether they're working from home, working in the office or, or hybrid and all of those kinds of things. And sometimes well-being at work is seen as a soft thing, is seen as a mm-hmm. high support, low challenge thing. And then people talk about High performance cultures often, when they talk about that, they mean high output cultures or high outcomes cultures, which can easily translate into high challenge, low support. Right. What What's the power of the relationship in creating a high performance culture that is also supportive of people's well being?
0: Well, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, I'm more apt to have your back if I know trust and like you right? If I don't, if I'm focused heads down on my to-do list to crank out the, the widgets that I need to crank out that day, right? My high outcome list of things to do. I'm not even paying attention to yours. And we like to say at Sky Team, you can't high perform alone, right? You can only get so far. But if I know, trust, and like you, I am more apt to look out for you and your well-being. If you're not having the best day, I can probably tell. I can see it on you and I'll inquire about it and I'll let you know that I'm there to support you. This has become much more uh, complicated in a distributed stroke hybrid workspace because I can't see it on you like I would have passing you in the hallway or walking to a meeting. I have to be much, much more intentional about getting together in this video space where I can at least hear the tone of your voice and see your eyeballs. But if I'm if I'm committed to that relationship and I, I use the word committed kind of loosely here, not in the we're, we're exclusive sort of a way, but I'm committed to bettering this relationship then I'm looking out for you and me, which means I'm looking out for your productivity. I'm looking out for your mental health and well-being, I'm looking out for your general overall happiness. You having any fun? I mean, it's funny. Ruby and I travel a lot together for client work and we just love each other. So and we have a unique way of showing it. We kind of we beat up on each other. We're kind of always punching at each other and making fun of each other. And we do it all in. We're just all chips in. And I love watching other people's reactions. We, we spend a lot of time in airports around a lot of people. And I see other people looking. And the number of people that we can make laugh or smile just makes my day, right? Because we've changed that person's dynamic. So if Ruby's not 100%, I got her. Right. If she comes in and says, dude, I this is I'm 30% today. I'm like, okay, I know I'm gonna have to turn it up. And I don't hesitate. If I didn't like her or didn't know her very well, well, A, she wouldn't say that to me. And B, I don't know how willing I would be to pick up her burden. Right. So the relationship is the critical centerpiece for making those things happen. Not just the doing, but the awareness, right? Like if I know that you're off or I know that you, there's a gap. I don't want that for you, right? I want to help. And if we, if the relationship isn't deep or broad, then I may not, I may not ask or I may not notice. So I think it's, it's that important to be connected in an intentional way such that those other things just, they're byproducts of the relationship. You don't have to try to do them. They come with being in a invested relationship.
1: Talk to me about the, the tricky clients, the cynics who go, I'm a really experienced <laughs> leader. I know how I lead at my best. That's what I do. And by the way, here's the numbers. I deliver the numbers. I get you're talking about relationships and well being and allyship and all those kinds of things. That's great. But actually, I'm, I don't think I need to change. What do you say to them?
0: Well, I actually had a, a coaching client one time say, do I really have to be friends with these people? I just want to come to work and do my job and go home. And, you know, I have a, I have a maxim in, in my coaching practice. I will never tell a leader they can't do something, right? You're a grown ass adult. You can do whatever you want. However, you should consider the implications of those choices, right? So no, you don't, you don't have to be friends with people. You don't have to make investments in these relationships and you deliver the numbers, right? Are you delivering the capacity of the team? Are you truly achieving what you're capable of? I would hazard probably not because in order to do that, you need incremental effort from people. And in my experience, there are only a few paths to incremental effort, right? Incremental reward, that's one path, but it's it's a defined path and it's not sustainable over a long period of time, right? I'm going to give you more money if you do more things. Okay, I will do more things for a while and then I won't, right? Because my standard of living has now caught up to my new income level and I am essentially back to where I was before you gave me that incentive. So that's a short-term path. The long-term path to incremental effort comes from I care about you, you care about me, and we are going to do some amazing stuff. If you can't get to incremental effort, then you're not going to get to potential success. So you don't have to. You can keep doing it the way you've been doing it. Stay on that hamster wheel. Or give it a shot. See what happens. You got nothing to lose, really. You can always go back to this This is baseline now. If you try it, well, if you're reluctant to try it, if you say if you said what you just said to me, I know it's going to be uncomfortable for you when you try it. It's like finding a new machine at the gym and you're like, I don't really know how this works and do I pull this or do I push that? And things feel weird. Well, the first time you try anything like that, it's going to feel weird. So you can't try it once and go, nope, that didn't work. You were wrong, Eric. Let's just move on with life. You got to be willing to stick to it for, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days, whatever the time frame is that you can get enough reps in that new mindset where you can actually evaluate its, its success. So you got nothing to lose. That's usually my argument is, okay, we're here. We can stay here. You don't need me to stay here, right? If that's where you want to be, you know, punch my ticket. I'm out. I'll refund your money. But if you want to try to get past here, And you're in a relatively unique situation in that if it doesn't work out, you don't lose anything except the time, effort, and energy that you spent talking to me and trying some new stuff. Do it or don't. No risk. So that's usually my tack.
1: I love it. It's really clear. It's really quite provocative. And I think that's important to say, you know, it's always your call. It's always your ownership as to what you do. I, I like that. So if people are listening to what you're saying here and they're going, I recognize this is something that I don't do enough today. I'm not aware of enough. I'm not mindful enough. And I want to get started, but I don't know where to get started. Where do you get people to start in changing their way of leadership in this kind of style?
0: Yeah. I mean, so so during the pandemic or right before the pandemic, I was exposed to Dr. BJ Fogg and his tiny habits mindset. And I was enamored of it. I loved it so much. You know, I bought the book and I devoured the book in a weekend and he was just kicking off a certification program. So I jumped on that train and became a certified tiny habits coach. So I use a lot of those principles and ideas when people talk to me about taking first steps, right? We call it chunking it down. You have to chunk it down to something really small, something that you know you can do, right? It's like, well, here we are, it's October, middle of October. We're entering into the holiday season where everybody's going to eat too much. And then they're going to come up on December 31st and make their resolution. And they're going to say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. And I always say, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> because that's not how it works. And then I will ask the question. I ask this question a lot when we're talking about change and 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 making change stick. I ask the question, who here has been to the gym in January? And people giggle and I say, what's the gym like in January? And it's interesting the responses you get. Some people are like, it sucks. Those are the people that go to the gym all the time. Other people go, oh, it's really crowded, right? Yeah. Then I'll ask, what's the gym like in March? And the gym rats will go, it's back to normal. The other people go, oh, it's pretty empty, right? So you have to start really small don't start with the B-hag. It's It's going to be, it's going to be a disappointment to you and the people around you. So if you're not a relationship person, if you think relationships are soft and fluffy and we have quote real work to do, right? Let's pick one relationship and let's pick one thing about that relationship that we want to have be different. Now, in the book, we talk about the five practices of the ally mindset, right? And you, so pick one. Maybe abundance and generosity isn't something that comes naturally to you. Maybe you, you have grown up in a scarcity mindset, right? So try that. Pick one thing that you can be free and, and open with, abundant and generous with. You know, when I first started working with Morag, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My dad always owned his own business back as far as I can remember. And so in small business, you find your competition and you kill them. So when I started working with Morag, the first question I asked her was, who's the competition? Who do we have to beat? And she goes, I have no idea. And I was like, what? What do you mean you have no idea? She's like, I have no idea. There's plenty of work out there. And if work comes across the desk that isn't a fit for us, I give it to somebody else. Blew my mind. Right? My 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 uh, driver type upbringing, it made no sense. You would fail right it's like the socialization that we get in american business especially that being vulnerable is being weak no being vulnerable is being authentic and being authentic is where the magic happens so pick one thing that you can let the wall down a little bit on if courage and vulnerability is your your challenge right it's got to be small
1: i love it how can people find out more about you and the work that you do
0: yeah easy peasy you can find me on linkedin My LinkedIn handle is E.S. Spencer. So just the LinkedIn stuff slash E.S. Spencer. Skyteam.com, S-K-Y-E-T-E-A-M.com. You can find everything that we do there. We've got a YouTube channel that's got a bunch of fun videos and all of those corporate bartender podcasts. You can get those there too.
1: Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For leadership coach and author Eric Spencer, it was taking a punt, and a curveball opportunity that opened up new horizons in his life's sweet symphony do check out the book you me we why we all need a friend at work and how to show up as one at amazon and all good bookstores eric it's been such a privilege to have you on thank you so much for joining me today on the unlock
0: moment no thanks gary
1: this has been the unlock moment a podcast with me dr gary Crothers. thank you for listening in You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the unlock moment.